Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be at work this afternoon by your Spirit, speaking to us, showing us yourself, and helping us respond to you. Amen. Um, I'm going to start with a fairly dark uh, story, and it dawned on me, actually, that the last time I spoke, I also started with a dark story, but halfway through it, I interrupted the... Inter- the uh, do you remember this? How many of you were here two weeks ago? There was a fly buzzing around my head. Do you remember this? And I thought this was my moment to kill it. And I went halfway through the story, and I got it, but I didn't kill it. Anyway, and it completely ruined the story. But... Uh, the fly then wandered off, and it wasn't really a problem. But I promise not to do that again this afternoon. But let me tell you a story from the biography of John Brown, who was a slave uh, in Virginia in the 1800s. <clears throat> and I should apologize for the fact that this needs to be read uh, if, you're, you know, from, if you're somebody from uh, the black community in the southern states rather than this uh, plummy Brit. So, apologies for that. Anyway, John Brown. Owing to a considerable rise in the price of cotton, there came a great demand for slaves in Georgia. One day, a Negro speculator named Starling Finney arrived at James Davis's place. Finney, being, an anxious, <coughs> and being anxious for a deal, and my master uh, called me and offered to sell me. I was then about or nearly 10 years of age, and after some chaffering about terms, Finney agreed to purchase me by the pound. A rope was brought, both ends of which were tied together so that it formed a large noose or loop. This was hitched over the hook in the still yard, and I was seated on the loop. After I had been weighed, there was a deduction made for the rope. I do not recollect what I weighed, but the price I was sold for amounted to $310. Within five minutes after, Finney paid the money and I was marched off. I looked round and saw my poor mother stretching out her arms uh, after me. She ran up and overtook us, but Finney would not let her approach, though she begged and prayed to be allowed to kiss me for the last time and bid me goodbye. That was the last time I ever saw her, nor do I know whether she is alive or dead at this hour. I walked before Finney, utterly unconscious of anything. I seemed to have become quite bewildered. I was aroused from this state of stupor by seeing that we'd reached the main road and had come up with a gang of Negroes, some of whom were handcuffed two and two and fastened to a long chain running between two ranks. The children seemed to be all above 10 years of age and I soon learned that they had been purchased in different places and were for the most part strangers to one another. I fell into rank and we set off on our journey to Georgia. Um, with my background in jazz, the, the history of slavery in the Deep South is a really important story. That's really that sits underneath um, the music that I play. Um, I suppose it's one of the more famous examples of slavery that we might think of. Um, and it's the one that we're going to be looking at this evening. You might have noticed that already in our passage in Galatians 4, which is page 1170, in case you want to reopen it. Um, Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at these different images that uh, the New Testament uses to explain the work of the cross, um, the different arenas, one might say, uh, that Paul uses particularly. Uh, We've talked about the cleansing of the temple. We've talked about the justification or the vindication of the law courts. 
uh, we've talked about uh, the, uh, the reconciliation of the family home. Um, and this week, we're looking at the marketplace, the buying and selling of slaves as an image for what Jesus did on the cross. And I suppose um, as we get going, I'm aware that with each of the other ones, we've focused, I think absolutely rightly, on that sense of what was accomplished at the cross in terms of that one-time thing. But I think as we come to Galatians, we're forced to ask that question, but to move on to another question, which is what does that look like as a lived reality after many years, maybe, of being a Christian? The book of Galatians is, uh, is when Paul gets most animatedly angry and uh, bemused, I suppose you might say, at this group of Christians who actually understand the ideas of redemption and all these big words. They understand the cross fairly well and yet have allowed a very different way of thinking to slip in once they have already come to faith. Um, they are they understand that they were freed from sin, and yet they've allowed themselves to move back into a place of effectively being slaves. And this drives Paul absolutely nuts. You, you stupid Galatians, he says at one point. Um, the, uh, one, the sort of iconic emblem of being part of the people of Israel would have been circumcision. Um, and... Uh, in this group of Christians who are starting to assist, insist that Christians uh, need to be circumcised to be truly part of God's people, Paul gets absolutely furious and he tells quite, a, quite an off-color joke. He says, next time someone's getting circumcised, I hope the knife slips and the rest gets lopped off as well. Can you imagine? That's in the Bible. That's how angry Paul is about this idea that one might forget what the cross means for your current identity, your current sense of who you are. And of course, in the ancient Near East, slavery was, was huge. It was everywhere. It was really the foundation of the whole economy. Um, and in fact, I should probably say, this is, a, a, this is an aside, that of course, today, slavery is also very prevalent. In fact, there are uh, apparently more slaves today than there were at the time of John Brown in the Deep South. <coughs> Um, it's a huge problem. There are tens of thousands of slaves in the UK, um, and something like 1% of them ever see any justice uh, for what's been done to them. Uh, so it's a real thing. Um, but that's really just an aside that I felt would be remiss of me not to mention. In the ancient Near East, it wasn't something that was hidden. It was something that was right out in plain sight. Um, and it would be quite common for somebody who was unable to pay a debt to sell themselves into slavery. It's the only thing that was left available to them. And of course, that brings together the idea of what we call justification two weeks ago, um, uh, that sort of the legal framework for what Jesus did on the cross, which might in some ways feel quite dry and transactional. That brings together that and this image today of redemption. Uh, redemption is what's required when uh, you are unable to pay the, your, the penalty uh, that is due. So what does slavery look like? Um, that John Brown story, there's a sense of a loss of number of things. Firstly, a loss of freedom, very obviously. 
Uh, a slave doesn't, simply doesn't get to do what they want to do. There's a loss of power, um, uh, an inability to get out of your current situation. There's a loss of identity. Did you notice that he was weighed by the pound? Um, there's certainly, you are viewed in terms of your functional usefulness, never in terms of who you are as a human. Um, and of course, it's an incredibly hopeless place where there is no real sense of there being a future to look forward to. That is the Bible's primary image of what it looks like to be human who hasn't met Jesus. I don't know how that makes you feel. But the story that undergirds really the whole Bible, certainly the Old Testament, and really undergirds what happens on the cross, is, of course, the Exodus story at the beginning of the book of Exodus. That really was Christmas and Easter rolled into one for the people of Israel. It was their big, defining story. And it is the story of this group of slaves who cry out to God, and God redeems them with mighty acts of judgment against their oppressors. He gives them a new identity by adopting them as his children. And he gives them the most wonderful inheritance, the land, the promised land that they are to enter and take. And it is that story that sits behind what Paul is looking at here in Galatians. But I don't know whether you like the idea or can handle the idea that you are, if you haven't yet met Jesus, a slave. Can you imagine, as you think about around your friends uh, uh, that you're going to be meeting up with at any point this week, that they are actually slaves? What are we slaves to? Uh, well, I think that the Bible expresses that in a whole raft of different ways. I think, firstly, there's simply the idea of slavery to sin, which I think could best be described in terms of the word addiction. And I don't want to downplay uh, the experience that uh, you or others around you might have had of addiction to alcohol or to anything else. But that is how the Bible seems to describe our slavery to sin. We, are, we wish we could be better. We wish we could defeat this thing, but we cannot get ourselves out of a cycle of, of, uh, of destruction. We're trapped, and we're trapped by something that we thought was going to give us such joy. We've let that thing into our lives, and, uh, and we've given it power, and it has enslaved us. Uh, you could say that the idea of sin, the definition of sin, is looking for joy in the wrong place. But that's the biblical image for us and the desires of the world. We are enslaved to them. And to some degree in that regard, we are both victims and criminals. Society's ills really are, in some ways, the sum total of all of our individual slaveries. Paul goes further and says that the whole world in its brokenness and sin is enslaved to decay. This is how, uh, how Eugene Peterson translates Romans 7, which I think is a brilliant little summary of what slavery to sin 
uh, might be expressed as. He says it this way. If I know the law but still can't keep it, and if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best interests, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. Sounds like the England rugby squad, but that's, that's for another day. G.K. Chesterton wrote to the Times in response to the simple question, what is wrong with the world today, with this simple letter, Dear Sir, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. That is slavery to sin and the way that that spills out into our society and all that we experience. So we have that lost freedom of addiction. We have the lost power of being trapped. When we come face to face with this wonderful God uh, and his, his, his law, whether that's uh, from our growing up as a Christian or whether that's simply what is implanted on our hearts in terms of our conscience, we all know that we fall well short of that and are unable to do anything about the gap that exists there. And, and that's what the Bible calls slavery to law. So we've lost our freedom, we've lost our power, we've lost our identity. Very often, I think, we find ourselves, our felt identity before God is simply one of being not good enough, of being ashamed. And of course, all of that results in a sense of hopelessness about the future. What could the future possibly hold? Maybe that's a summary of what slavery looks like for us. But here in Galatians, Paul does this wonderful explanation of how God redeems us from slavery. He gives us his, uh, God gives us his very life. Uh, he pays the debt that we owe in order to redeem us. There uh, in verse 5, that, that God sent his son to redeem those under the law. Um, or you might look back at the previous chapter, chapter 3, verse 13. Uh, it says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. In Christ's death, He pays the price to free us. We are no longer trapped by our sin. He doesn't just give us a life, though. He gives us a new identity by adopting us as as his children, just as he did in the Exodus story. Notice that in the second half of verse 5, he redeems uh, redeems those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons, of course, in the ancient world, it was sons rather than daughters that inherited. So although it would be far better to translate it to children, one needs to remember that the point here, partly, is that we are no longer slaves. We are now sons who can inherit, as he goes on to say, uh, verse 7. Uh, 
that we are no longer slaves but a son, and since we are sons, God has made us also an heir. So God gives us not only his life, not only a new identity, but he gives us a future. And in the midst of it all, he gives us his Holy Spirit. Did you notice that in verse 6? Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Abba would, would be a bit like dad or daddy. It would be a very intimate word that, a, that you would use for your father, actually no matter what age you were. That the Holy Spirit in us uh, changes that, that sense of who God is and gives, gives us that sense of love and intimacy, which is really the starting point of being transformed, uh, knowing that we are safe uh, in following him, knowing that in following him, he has the best for us, and that therefore, being driven towards personal transformation uh, by the Holy Spirit. One might say, in, in summarizing all of that, uh, I think, I can't remember who it was that told me this, but I've always found it quite helpful, that we have been saved from, uh, we have been freed from the penalty of sin. We are being freed from the power of sin as God transforms us, and we will be freed from the presence of sin as we uh, take up the full inheritance of the new restored heaven and earth. But, and this is, uh, this is where Paul really wants to go with the whole book of Galatians, it's not enough just to, to get that and get it as a past transactional experience, one might say. The challenge is to keep that identity, uh, to keep that live. I don't know if you noticed that towards the end of our reading. Uh, but now that you, are, that you know God, this is verse 9, now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? It's a storyline that I've seen in, in various things, the idea of somebody who, who is freed from prison or freed from slavery, who actually can't quite handle life on the outside. They're, they're so habituated by uh, their former life that they will do anything to get back into prison or get back into slavery. It's as if Paul is saying that's the temptation for each of us, but we are not what we do. We must keep this identity as children of God who need to do nothing uh, to be freed from slavery, nothing to have this restored uh, relationship with God, nothing to have the inheritance that he has for us in the future, nothing to have the Holy Spirit given to us. Because, of course, it's incredibly easy to import the ideas of the world into our sense of who God is and our relationship with him. Um, I'm not going to get on my uh, Facebook soapbox at this point, but I think that Facebook is really terrible at giving us a sense of what's expected of us to be acceptable as human beings. We have this sense that we have to present ourselves uh, a certain way in order to be affirmed, in order to be welcomed into uh, a, a, as a valid part of, of our community. There is this search for affirmation. And I know in myself that's something that runs very, very deep. 
And it is so easy for me to import that into my relationship with God. It is so easy to think, as long as I keep up the right appearances, God will keep loving me. As long as I do the right things, God will keep loving me. But what Paul would say here is he'd get furious with me for that. He'd basically say, you are adding to what Jesus did on the cross, which is in some ways the ultimate insult. No, we need somehow to retain the freedom that God has given us. We need to remember that as our core identity, and that be a freedom from all of the slaveries uh, that we've talked about, or even what one might call the slavery uh, to social anxiety, which I think is, is where it lands, uh, certainly for me and maybe for others of us. We need to retain that idea that in the perfect uh, father love of God, we are freed from everything, freed even from our very selves. So, as you think into this week, as you think about uh, those that you're going to be interacting with, what does it mean for you to act as a free person? What are the slaveries that you might uh, want to express? Are you enslaved uh, to a sense of social anxiety? Are you enslaved to desires and passions for things of this world? What would it mean for you to live as a free person in the midst of all of that? Lord Jesus, we thank you for the perfect freedom that you buy for us through the cross. We thank you that you not only free us from the penalty of our sin, but by your Holy Spirit you are transforming us. Uh, that uh, you are presenting us with a God who is our loving Father and that you've given us a wonderful inheritance. Um, and we pray that we will live out of that joy and hope and freedom this week, that we would display it to all around us, um, and that through that uh, we would go deeper into that as a lived and felt reality. Amen.